being a scientist, it's all about curiosity. And I, for me, there are not many bigger questions than you know, the workings of the entire universe. This is Geraint Lewis, Professor of Astrophysics at the Sydney Institute of Astronomy at the University of Sydney. His research is dedicated to the stuff in the universe we know the least about, which is most of it. I try and understand the evolution and the makeup of the universe, and I've got a strong focus in trying to understand dark matter and dark energy, these two components we don't really know a lot about, but we know that they dominate the universe. We seem to have this precise set of physical laws that allows us to be here. Physicists call these precise set of laws fine-tuning. You can think of it like tuning the strings on a guitar. You have to get it at just the right note. If you tune it too tight or too loose, the sound comes out wrong. Well, it's the same for our universe. We have a detailed set of requirements that had to be met in order for life, i.e. us, to exist. But if we change even one tiny thing... We find that our universe would be dead and sterile. The laws that govern our universe are so precise and so complex that to some physicists, they begin to look intentional. Of all the elements colliding across the universe over billions of years, how could our world have ended up exactly like it is? There are different potential solutions. The multiverse is one. But another potential solution is that the universe is fine-tuned because it was set up that kind of way by somebody who set up a simulation of a universe and we're part of that simulation. We're running inside some sort of higher computer. If you have a powerful enough computer that can do the calculations that our brain needs to, then you could imagine that we are beings inside software, inside a computer, thinking that we're experiencing a physical universe where actually it's not. How do we know that we're living beings going around our everyday life? What if we are just computer code executing inside a computer? And if we are, what does it mean for us? Welcome to the first Think Digital Futures of 2018. I'm Shane Anderson. And we're starting off with no bigger question. A question at the crossroads of science, philosophy and most contemporary science fiction. Are we living in a computer simulation? I, in my stories and novels, often write about counterfeit worlds. Worlds. I imagine you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Right now, we're inside a computer program. What is real? How do you define real? Is it really so hard to believe? The only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed and some alteration in our reality occurs. I may be talking about something that does not exist. Therefore, I'm free to say everything or nothing. That last voice you heard there is science fiction author Philip K. Dick. You're probably familiar with his mind-bending sci-fi. Movies like Blade Runner, Minority Report and Total Recall are all based on his ideas. Philip K. Dick was preoccupied with the simulation hypothesis in the 70s, and has been a mainstay in sci-fi ever since. But the origins of this idea go way back. Here's Geraint again. It's gone by many names in the past, so there's this idea that how come we're not simply brains in a vat and being fed information? Your brain would not know any different, right? Because that's how you experience the universe. And before the vat, even ancient philosophers had questions about how real our experience of reality is. 
Chinese philosopher Zhuangzi, who lived in 3rd century BCE, wondered if he was a man who dreamt he was a butterfly, or if he was a butterfly dreaming he was a man. The simulation hypothesis didn't enter into academic thought until Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom wrote a paper on it in 2003. He is one of the ones that brought about the modern understanding of the simulation hypothesis. He sort of laid out the ground rules, the ideas of what makes up the simulation hypothesis. Bostrom's ground rules took what was a problem for philosophers and writers and made it a problem for physicists. He put it into a context of modern computing. If we consider the evolution of computers, eventually we might be able to simulate consciousness on a computer. And then there would probably be a move from the physical world to the computer world. In Bostrom's paper, humanity jumps at the chance to move into the digital world. If we could all live forever online, then why wouldn't we? If that was the case, then most of what we would call people would end up in this future universe on a computer... And if we imagine a future in which we've built our own simulations and our minds and bodies are able to exist in this artificial world, then how do we know that we're not already part of someone else's simulation? Let's just get one thing out of the way. If our world is indeed computer code programmed by someone or something we have no comprehension of, what's the difference between the simulation hypothesis and modern religion? The entire religious question, of course, religion means different things to different people. And I don't know how many people see their God as being a computer programmer. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it, we could be the, the science project of a undergraduate student, right? In a whatever's above us kind of thing. That might not be somebody's idea of, of a particular God. If that sounds far-fetched, then don't worry. With the exception of Elon Musk, most people think of it the same way Bostrom does, as a hypothesis. Set this boundary between philosophy and science, but it's very difficult to rule out these particular arguments as possibilities. Do you think it's possible? Oh, yes. I mean, we do have this big stumbling block that we don't understand what consciousness is and whether or not a computer brain will ever be conscious in the way we understand human consciousness to be. But, you know, if you, if you just think that it's all physics in there and complicated networks, then I see no reason why we wouldn't be able to simulate that in the future. So the biggest question you can ask from that is how do we test it? This is Dr. Martin Bell. I'm an astrophysicist here at UTS. And yeah, you deviate quite quickly from what you can test to being sort of philosophical about, oh, you know, this feels a bit weird in life. But there are ways you could test this theory. The first method to test this theory is by, well, doing it. Building a convincing simulation. Did I mention it's really hard to test this theory? You need a hugely complex computer to be able to simulate an entire universe and all the human beings and all their thoughts and all of their DNA and all, all the stuff that, that goes into this simulation. Not only would you need a hugely complex computer, you would need a lot of energy to power it. Basically, we need quantum computers. Now, we've talked about quantum computing on the show before, and it is a tough one to wrap your head around. The problem is when we get to the quantum level, things stop behaving the way we understand them to. It's unintuitive. However, we can harness what we do know about quantum physics to build what we call a quantum computer, which doesn't resemble at all what we think of as a normal computer. Quantum computing is this level of computing whereby you use the strange properties of matter on the very small scale where particles are interrelated. So you can do calculations on a quantum computer. 
and they could give us the processing power to sustain a convincing simulation. Geraint says this is all thanks to a thing called reversibility. So you can go from an answer back to the question. Now, modern computers can only go from the question to the answer. So computers have to forget things. And it's that act of forgetting that wastes energy. That's why computers get hot, is they forget things. With quantum computers, you can do that so they're much more efficient. If you had a quantum computer, which, by the way, they don't exist yet, it would get a lot easier to create a simulation. But what would you be simulating? Things get even more difficult when you attempt to recreate the human brain, something AI researchers have been trying to do for a long time. Without these technological leaps, we have no way of knowing if it's possible to simulate a universe, and therefore no way of knowing if we're in a simulation. So if we did wake up one day to the news that we are actually living inside a computer, would anything actually change? The universe will still operate the way it operates. I think a lot of people, if you could show it was a synthetic universe, you just start asking yourself the bigger questions about what's at the level above. Of course, there would be plenty of philosophers who will have plenty of TV shows to discuss the implications of this. But I think for most people, you will get on with what you call life. Right. So you're saying if we wake up tomorrow and we find out we're in a simulation, the biggest change will be more like BBC documentaries about philosophy and (laughs) physics? Uh, Possibly. I mean, you know, and I think a lot of people don't worry about the philosophy of life that much anyway. When you've got your day-to-day to deal with, then worrying about the fundamental makeup of the universe might not have too much of a bearing on, on your everyday life. This isn't something that's discussed at leading conferences. I think it's more on the sort of fringes, uh, more sort of philosophical side. But currently, as it stands, I mean, I think most astrophysicists are trying to grapple with just to understand what the heck's going on. And what the heck is going on with astrophysics is stranger than the simulation hypothesis. It's funny, we're talking about the fact that we may live in a simulation. We actually simulate the universe right now. But our, our simulations are very basic because we don't have very much computer power to, to do them. Current simulations don't run on quantum computers, but they're not being run off your average desktop either. They require supercomputers. I'm imagining like those 70s computers where it's like the whole room and it's just buttons up and down the wall. Am I close? Uh, you are. Actually, modern supercomputers still look very similar. I mean, in the old days, you would have a dedicated machine, but now you basically take lots of, I wouldn't say standard computers, but very normalish computers, and you rack them together and get them to talk to each other. And supercomputers are still pretty impressive. The world's fastest supercomputer can perform 93 quadrillion calculations per second. Compare that to your average laptop, which does a measly 1 billion calculations per second, and you get a sense of how powerful these things are. But supercomputers aren't perfect. They use a lot of energy to do those calculations because they have to do an awful lot of calculations. Sims that run off these contraptions give astrophysicists the opportunity to study the universe in ways that aren't possible in real time. They are very informative and allow us to, if you like, start the universe off at a certain time and let it evolve for 10 billion years. And we look at those data and images and try and understand how things got to the way they were. The most informative one to date was actually run in 2005. It's called the Millennium Sim. 
All that had in it was 10 billion particles. Each particle represented about a billion solar masses of material, so about a billion suns in each one of those particles. And that was it. Astrophysicists recreated a point in time about 380,000 years before the universe began, so they could watch how galaxies formed. You just give that simulation the laws of gravity at the start of the universe, and you just let it go. And all of those big particles attract each other and start to form galaxies, and, and you just give it the basic physics for how those things can form, and you actually get a lot of the structures that you see in the universe today. So when you say 10 billion particles into the Millennium Simulation, you mean artificial particles. Programmers are putting in code that simulates a particle? Yeah, they're very simple. Like in a line of code, that would say mass particle 1, you equal this, and you live in this part of space. Mass particle 2, you live over there, and this is how you're attracted to each other via this equation. And then you just, in the simulation, you put the time in and you say, off you go, just evolve as a function of time and all of those particles start to attract each other and coalesce and form the structure that we see today. The Millennium Sim creates beautiful images of the galaxies forming over billions of years, which you can actually check out online. But to researchers like Martin, there are a lot more than pretty pictures. What we actually do, you take that simulation and you can take measurements from it and actually go and observe the real universe and to see if we've got it right. You can test gravity, you can test all of our theories to see how they, they would work. It's this back and forth comparing what we simulate to what we observe that makes sure they're accurate. And often what you find out of it is that you form a galaxy, but it doesn't quite look like the galaxies we observe in the universe, like the bulge in the centre is too big and the spiral arms are just too large. So astronomers look at that and say, hey, that's not quite right. So there's something else. We need some other equation that we're missing. And when we've got it right, we can make some pretty cool discoveries about our place in the universe. Like last year when astrophysicists decided the Milky Way is in what's known as a cosmic void, which sounds existential and terrifying, but it basically just means there's not much going on in our galaxy compared to what's out there. This is stuff we wouldn't know if we weren't able to observe the universe from outside. Does it frustrate you, I guess, if people draw from your research, oh, this far-flung future thing could happen when you're like, look at what we're doing right now? Yeah, and every now and then, you know, a discovery comes along, you know, a really groundbreaking discovery comes along in astrophysics, which really does change our view of the universe, which is, you know, remarkable. But it's, it's a lot of teams and people taking little tiny steps forward. And here is a crash course in one of those discoveries now. A discovery single-handedly challenging what we think we know about the universe and opening up new doors of possibility for exploration. A discovery that last year earned three physicists a Nobel Prize, but took closer to a thousand physicists to figure out. If you think about it, we've got different spectrums, we call them. We've got light which is how we see everything, but that's the electromagnetic spectrum. We have sound, how we hear things, and we've just been given a brand new spectrum. We use these spectrums to see the universe well beyond what your conventional telescope can see. Now we have a new kind of telescope to view the universe through. And this one comes from the detection of gravitational waves. Gravitational waves were predicted by Einstein in his original general theory of relativity. According to the theory of relativity, gravity comes from heavy objects bending the fabric of space-time. 
Einstein predicted that this would produce gravitational waves in 1916, but he thought it would be impossible to develop a way to test it. And he was right. Until last year. It was a discovery that took everyone by surprise. Things like that don't happen. Like, you make a prediction, you build an instrument, and then you're an order of magnitude away from where you need to be. But, but it turns out this time we were, we were sort of spot on the money. And that's really groundbreaking. It takes particularly big cosmic events to produce gravitational waves. Things like stars exploding, or in the case of this discovery, merging black holes. These events are so destructive, they send ripples of waves out into the universe. They even reach us. The sound you're currently hearing is actually a sonification of gravitational waves emanating from black holes, courtesy of MIT's LIGO lab. The blips, these ones, are the gravitational waves. They were detected by a contraption called LIGO, or Advanced Laser Interferometry Gravitational Wave Observatories. That's right, lasers. They fire lasers at each other, these two lasers at these two mirrors, and they can detect like an atom's change in the distance between them. As this gravitational wave passes by, it moves those detectors slightly. They're detected only slightly because the ripples are a thousandth of the size of a proton nucleus. In other words, very small. This is why Einstein thought we would never be able to detect them. Perhaps what Einstein didn't anticipate was a global effort of around 1,000 physicists from astronomical observatories around the world. The gravitational wave observatories had agreements with many standard astronomical observatories around the planet. They sent out alerts to all these observatories around the world. So they said, look, we're going to turn the thing on. We're at the right sensitivity. We'll start from this October. And we pointed our telescopes at those patches of the sky to see if there was some aftermath of that explosion. It does almost sound like this great moment of like synchronicity, though. Everyone points their telescopes up to the exact same point. Yeah, and it's it's a massive worldwide effort to, to follow these things up. I mean, really, I don't think there were many observatories around the planet that weren't on some level interested in these events. The detection of gravitational waves is such a game-changer, scientists have even called this the start of a new era of astronomy. We can now try to use gravitational waves to see the universe in ways we couldn't before using the electromagnetic spectrum. When the discovery has happened, like, you know, everyone was just like, I want to unwrap my presents, you know. We have, like, so many presents to unwrap here. The simulation hypothesis certainly makes for great party chat. But when we move out of the realm of pop philosophy and into the realm of astrophysics, actual discoveries are being made that are challenging the way we think about our place in the universe. And even if it turns out these discoveries are being made within a giant software program, what difference does it really make? The universe will be no less incredible and complex. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures. This show is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We have a website, it's 2SCR.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. Also remember to subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, say hi, leave a review. Thanks to Gary Lewis and Martin Bell for this episode. My name is Shane Anderson. Thanks for listening.